Welcome, everyone. It's a wrap with rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Armand Vestad from Norway. Armand is here today with us to tell his story of how his life changed for the better. In the past, Armand spent a lot of time on the run. Through a series of poor life choices and unfortunate circumstances, he had found himself dealing drugs and engaging in other types of criminal activity. He even gained notoriety as the infamous gunman from Moday after supplying a weapon that was used in a triple homicide. After leaving prison for the 10th time, it wasn't long before Armand found himself under arrest again. This time, something extraordinary happened, and in a few moments, that event changed Armand's life forever. Welcome to the podcast, Armand. So good to have you. Thanks, Roland. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the introduction. What was your early years uh, growing up like? And I understand you lived on a peninsula on the west coast of Norway. Now, did coming from that area uh, in any way affect the way people thought of you? Well, um, to be honest, I had a pretty good childhood um, with, uh, with my parents and uh, three siblings. Um, but I was living on an island with 150 inhabitants. So, you know, the place where everyone knew each other. And, yeah. um, <laughs> and <laughs> we have one shop. And this shop was open three times a week. And it was also kinder school there for, for the first six, year, first six years of school. But um, I, was a, I remember how I was as a kid, and I was a, a kid that liked to meet people, liked to get friends, and liked to uh, yeah, do things that um, were uh, including a lot of people. And, and I didn't have any kind of possibilities to that on this island because I had three people in my class. And those wow. two others, they were completely different uh, persons than I well, so I was a bit lonely, I would say, Ron, when I was growing up the first uh, 12 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and only 150 inhabitants. Only, only. And, uh, wow. you know. So and, everybody, uh, know, everybody knows what you're doing. Put it that way. Yeah, it was. And it was on, on, the, on the countryside, really on the countryside. You have to take ferry to get inside to the small city. But at the time, I thought that was a big, big city. But uh, this city, Molde, as you and earlier um, I mentioned it was uh, only 20,000 uh, citizens as well. Yeah. So it was a small village. But anyway, that was the place where I was looking to get because I was supposed to pick up my new friends there. Sure. So, yeah, sure. I l- really looked forward to that. But it didn't went that well, I would say, because um, we that was from this island. We were called farmers and um yeah uh, yeah so we didn't fit in in the in uh, in this normal yeah so did they look kind of down on you is that what you mean yeah i would say that uh, ron they, they they teasing i would say not uh not very hard but for a person yeah. that uh, was looking for friends and has been looking for friends for six years i was i was disappointed of course and i didn't sure. have the right clothes uh you needed to have particular clothes and I didn't have that, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it was hard. Another three couple of years was really hard. Now take us through your school years, through secondary school. What kind of issues did you have uh, with yourself, such as self-esteem and things like that? Well, uh, I I discovered I was pretty good in in playing soccer um, at the time. And that was my huge interest. And because of that, I, I, um, I did get some friends, uh, I would say. Um, but I, because of that, I also had to move to my grandfather. He lived on the, on the, on the Molde side. So I can stay with him because the football workouts, they were um, three, four times a week. And the ferry didn't go that much to the island. So instead of using all the afternoon traveling, I was convincing my parents couldn't i please please stay with my grandfather because i'm so important to me that i can play football and i do think my parents also saw that 
I needed one kind of area where I could um, feel fulfillment and uh, achievement. So sure. I, I moved to my grandfather at the age of 14. And uh, grandfather, he gave me money. And that was the big change in, in a lot of things in my life, I would say, because with the money, it's hard to, I, I can try to calculate in US dollars, but um, I think it was approximately 10 US dollars a day he gave me. And with that's that pretty money, good. That's pretty yeah, good. It is. It yeah. is. And you have to remember, this was back in 92. Yeah. So yeah. I would say you can double the, the amount today. And, and with those money, I was suddenly accepted by the previous uh, friends or not friends that I didn't succeed to get before. And the money was the entrance to those. So, but I didn't see that at the time. I, ju- I was just so happy to be included and to be seen and, and uh, that someone listened to what I had to say. Sure. Uh, for the first time in many years. And, and it was the money that gave me this kind of access to, to the people I wanted. Now, did grandfather uh, uh, make you do any chores for that money? Or did he just just say, hey, here's Tim, $10 or 10 euros or whatever? Yeah, you yeah, know, he, he just he just gave, gave it away to me because he was okay. a kind old man. And yeah. he didn't have... Yeah. A money issue at all and uh, so so he was yeah he was giving to me but okay i i suddenly saw also that the money he was giving me was not enough to to keep up with uh the demand i felt that i had to had to have because i bought clothes were expensive so i started to steal from his pocket uh i remember and i i at the time now i i still feel the shame when i S- suddenly was in front of his wallet and 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 i was taking uh, a 10 dollar bill no yeah. bill 10 dollar um uh, out of his pocket and but after time it gets yeah you get used to it so the shame will be a more yeah later on shallow, yeah, yeah so so i was i was stealing his money uh, from the age of 14 15 years old and and uh, yeah, that's the shame, really, Ron. So now we move to ages uh, 20 to 31. So tell us about your job and what led you into the, into the crime. Well, um, I had, I had, after this period, I had a pretty good um, years after and was playing soccer, and, but I wasn't good enough for, for being a part of that and the team in the in my home city which was a pretty good team um in norwegian standards um and most of my friends they were players there so i didn't succeed so i was still searching for uh, some kind of environment or and friends that i could be a part of sure. and suddenly i i found that um, in as a doorman at this uh, at nightclubs so when i was 18 years old i got the job as a doorman and that was pretty cool, I had to say, when you were 18 years old. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and most of the people working there were good people, but they had some habits. M- many of them, they were smoking weed and they were taking anabolics sometimes. And when you're in that same space as them, you adapt the culture in a way, because even if you don't want to, you know that uh, smoking weed is, is not permitted and... Uh, but you, you do it anyway because the rest are you're so fascinated of the rest and they are taking yeah. care of you and everything sure so that was that was this time when i started to see that the money i i earned on this job uh, and the people i was joining at the time they led me into uh, a crime career because um, um I, I continue as a doorman when I moved away to a bigger cities in uh, in Norway, and um, I you know you f- you find people that has the same attitudes as yourself. Um, yeah, you're attracted to little you know to to people who do you know like the same things you do, and that's yeah, it. and then 
But and I, and I lived a double life for many years, I would say, because I had a completely normal family. I was studying at the same time. I was taking three, four years at the university with not fantastic uh, um, results, but pretty good. Uh, and at the at the night time, I was working as a doorman and doing drugs and also starting to selling drugs because I saw it was a huge potential in the money side of it. And um, but the police was coming after. And more often to to visit me and and when my family which was really had no idea about it at all um also got visit, visits from the police they throwed me away and from that time i was a, a full-time criminal i would say and I, I i went to the capital of norway and i continued to work as a doorman at the most popular clubs in in norway um and yeah lived the life as um, <laughs> with one with a lot of money, I would say. Yeah. Now you stated uh, that the first five years, and and, and we're we're talking about ages around twenty to thirty one. Would that be accurate? I was uh, yeah from the twenty to thirty one. Yeah, that was oh, okay. uh, and Then I was completely off track. So you stated that the first five years was the wedding journey. And the last five years of that time period uh, was the journey to hell. So can you describe to the audience what those two time periods entailed, um, such as uh, the crimes you committed, your reputation in the criminal community, and uh, your eventual drug usage? Well, um, I, I was... In the beginning, uh, it was just fun, you know. It's it no responsible at all, and you did what you want to do, and you had a lot of money, and you were popular, and uh, uh, so. And we have to agree, or at least I, I know it was taking drugs is good the first years. Um, so the first five, four or five years, it was like a wedding, as I tell. Um, but I. I didn't have the ability to limit myself. Um, so I was always taking more and taking more of the drugs. And I didn't, I was not good in handling um, not taking drugs at all. So when the drugs are out of your body, you feel depressed. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have the courage, I would say, um, or the time to feel depressed because I had so much to do in the criminal activities because i was making my own drugs i was i was taking drugs from the from abroad and i also made a lot of other criminal activities and being sick of not having drugs it was not an option for me so i was i was still taking more and more and more to have the same effect and suddenly the body was completely empty of I would say dehydrated and everything, and and my yeah. mental health was at the minimum. I would say. Former guest on the podcast and supporter of the podcast, Danny Van has just authored his latest book, Ninety Nine Days of a Hundred Percent Encouragement. Danny is the founder and director of the Aging Out Academy, where the journey from chaos to hope takes a huge leap forward. Dr. John DeGarmo, a leading foster care and parenting expert of the Foster Care Institute and recipient of the Good Morning America Ultimate Hero Award, states that Danny experienced great trauma in his life as a boy growing up in Michigan. Worry, despair, loneliness, and anxiety were part of Danny's childhood. Chaos and uncertainty, as Danny puts it, were part of his ongoing sadness in life. Eventually, Danny ended up in an orphanage by age 12, and from there, bouncing around from one foster home to another, as Danny puts it, he endured the challenges of adjusting to new families, changing schools, and making new friends. Like so many, Danny was succumbing to the constant loneliness. To be sure, Danny's future looked bleak. This young man had every reason to give in to his trauma, give up, and become yet another tragic statistic. Dr. DeGarmo goes on to credit Danny for helping those who transitioned out of foster care by providing valuable resources. Dr. DeGarmo also states Danny is a mentor to others who have faced trauma and he is quickly becoming a go-to person in the foster care world. Danny's message 
is a unique one of hope and survival. This book will brighten your day with a short, uplifting, sane, or brief, inspiring story. Read it, share it, say it, do it. We can all use encouraging words from time to time. You will not be disappointed from this collection of the lifelong encourager, Danny Vance's favorite sayings and stories. We are all on this journey through this thing we call life. You are not alone. Millions of people have survived twists and turns, pain, abuse, neglect, and suffering, speed bumps, detours, and dead ends on their own road trip. Now you can be encouraged with samples of how others found ways to get through it all and stay positive no matter what happened to them. Danny encourages the reader to say it out loud and then share these sayings with others to help you and them have 100% encouragement every day. The more you share, the more you will care. For anyone dealing with trauma and seeking peace and healing, Danny Van has been there and he wants to help you find ways to overcome and survive. Based on his own story of orphanage to foster care home to alcoholic blended family and emancipation at age 17, Danny became successful in music and in corporate America. He is here to help and encourage those struggling in this crazy world today. The book would make a wonderful gift for those that could use encouragement and who really couldn't use it today. The book, 99 Days of 100% Encouragement, is available in paperback and Kindle version through Amazon. The book information will be listed in the podcast notes and featured on the podcast Facebook page and website under the sponsor tab. Yeah. So you get arrested and spend time in prison. What was the prison like for you? And did the prison system in Norway try to help the inmates get educated or learn a skill? So uh, when they get released, they might not want to return to a life of crime. Well, I would, I would say yes to that. Um, but um, it, it all depends on yourself. Because in the first time I was in prison, I just used it to um, collect more criminal friends uh, and to learn more about the criminal activities and, and criminal life and also to rest a bit. Um, but when I was, I was, the reason why I, I managed to, to turn my life around was because I met people that has extraordinary skills in meeting people in crisis. And one of the biggest um, uh, or, or the most important persons in my turnaround is one prison inspector. So when I was ready for it, uh, I w- uh, it has a huge, uh, I would say the Norwegian, um, uh, I don't know the word in English, but um, the, um, the prison system has, has a huge impact on people if they just want to take advantage of it. Right. Yeah, I would say that wrong. Yeah. So it is available. Yeah. Okay. So you get released, then you get rearrested. But this time, uh, when the police come for you, something different happens. Tell us uh, the turning point. Yeah. And, and the turning point, uh, just one year or two years before the turning point, I was uh, become involved in a very big uh, homicide case in Norway because I was delivering the guns that were used for this triple homicide. And uh, as for today, it's the, it's the second largest criminal case in Norway. Uh, it has uh, the people that has been, um, the people that uh, were killed, um, they haven't found out really who did it they have they had charged and put people into prison for it for 20 years but they didn't find out exactly who did it so it's it's very um much attention on this case still today 20 years after um, yeah yeah i can imagine and um and i was using this case i remember as a as a, tried to position me in the criminal uh, gangs um because i was the gunman from from Molde, um, delivering those guns. And, um, but after that, I was so fast tired of this life. And uh, it was only one year or one and a half year after I was 
almost dead, I would say, um, sitting in my dirty apartment at the time um, and um, with no money and with, I was 70 kilos um, and no future at all, uh, I would say. And then a policeman, he was coming to arrest me. And not only one, it was a bunch of them because I was at the time a bit dangerous. And so, so, but instead of arresting me, he was sitting next to me and he was holding his arm around me and, and asked me if there were anything he could do to help me because it didn't look that good. Yeah. And, and you have to remember, you know, this is like, this is like, I don't know how to, uh, to compare it, but it's almost like a Mac and PC talks to each other. It doesn't happen, you know, they're not compared. Competitive. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. They're not so compatible, right? Compatible, and yeah. So, I was completely surprised over his uh, gentle question and appreciation of me, and also of, of my reaction because I started to cry, you know. And yeah. um, he showed concern. Yeah, really, really, and compassion, and he showed me that I wasn't alone. Yeah, and that realization. It was too strong for me at the moment. So I, I, I cried for several minutes. And it wasn't that I didn't have done anything wrong that night because I had. I had guns in my apartment, so he had to arrest me. But he just used 10 minutes and showed his concern. And he also told me or asked me if I wanted, he could come to visit me in the cell next morning if I wanted to that. And he came back, you know. Yeah, he, he did. Spoke, yeah. yeah, so he showed extremely um skill sets in in his promises and everything and and that because if he hadn't come back the next day it would be much easier uh, harder for me to trust the police uh in terms of this kind of help thing yeah uh, in the future because i'm so sure that, you i'm sure you had a really negative attitude toward the police for a long time Yes, yes, because they were always arresting me. And uh, when people are trying to see me down, yeah, <laughs> you try to avoid them. And I, I tried yeah. this evening as well, but but I was too tired. So I just lying there in, in my couch and and he was sitting next to me and he did all that in just 10 minutes and it completely changed my life. I didn't I didn't change the life that evening, but he gave me the courage and the belief in myself that I was worth something. Yeah. So I could use that when I met the next person in my in my story. So also showed extremely skill sets. So that was a big spark, put it that it was, way. It was like an ignition, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you start to rehab and educate yourself as a financial advisor and social worker. Uh, please talk about that time period. <laughs> yeah. Honey, that's... Uh, Mm, yeah, because when I was in prison and, and I went, met this person that was important for me in prison, she was um, uh, she was walking with me outside the prison walls without any guards, without any handcuffs, because she needed to speak with me because inside prison, I didn't listen because I had the reputation to take care of. Sure. So, I didn't listen. So she took me out of the prison and walked with me in the streets of Molde. And this, you have to remember, this is a couple of years after the, the well-known homicide. So it was a risk at all, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we had a conversation when we were walking. And she told me that I've seen that you like to help other people because you help other prisoners. You help them to write application and you help them to do things they are not that good at themselves. So maybe you should be some kind of social worker. And I was so angry with her. And you mean I'm, you mean I'm going to be a social worker? I, I have met so many social workers that haven't a clue how it's like to be a criminal. No, yeah. I'm not. I'm angry with you now. <laughs> and we both just walk for one minute. And I suddenly stopped her and I said, Mette, well... I think I'm going to be a social worker and I'm going to be the best social worker in the world. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, and, um, 
and I couldn't go back to that promise, you know. So that was that was when I decided I want to show the world that it was possible. But um, uh, there is, of course, uh, a lot um, in between here that needs to be covered, of course, to understand well, the complete picture. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she showed a lot of courage and compassion just taking you out of there and walking with you and talking. I mean, you must have felt, hey, I really can't go back on this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she, she, she showed me enormous trust. And yeah. if, you, if you're going to help people, um, because I've learned this lesson myself afterwards, because I've been working for 15 years in the helping industry myself. Uh, and one of the biggest skill sets is that you have to show courage and you have you have to break out of a pattern you because that's something you notice and you have to take challenges because then you send a signal to the other part that you are you can be insecure but i trust you i i want you all the best and i think we have something to collaborate with here and and that was also one of the reasons why the next step in my rehab was to get a job. You know, I, I took an education, three years social worker, but then the biggest challenge was in front of me, and that was how to get a job. I didn't have any CV at all. I had a, I had a, <laughs> I had a record for crime, you know, and it was very long. Right. right. So, so who would? So, well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I read that when you were in debt after that police, after that encounter, initial encounter with that police officer for around 200,000 euros. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. Okay. So, so now you have to find a job. So tell us about that experience and the woman taking a chance on you. And what questions did she ask you as a candidate for that job? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I would say that it's, of course, when I was applying for the job as a debt consultant in the Norwegian welfare system. Uh, it yeah, that's, a bit that's of a pretty question. interesting. You're $232,000 in debt, and you're going to be a debt consultant. But that makes sense, because <laughs> you know how to tell people not to get into debt. <laughs> yes, it, it's, it makes no sense in, in the, before you dive into it, because... Right. Um, but I was I I really meant that I had something to offer the Norwegian public government in that because I knew how it felt to be in debt, and I was uh, working myself out of it, and um, that was also the reason I think uh, that this manager hired me uh, as a debt consultant as well because if I didn't have any control of it, I don't think she would. But it was so many other uncertain circumstances as well she had to take care of because I didn't have any CV. What would happen if this man, this early criminal man, would have an, an, um, an setback uh, and right. try to be, yeah, meet some of the old fellows in, uh, in yeah. the offices? Uh, and it would be a first page on every newspaper, you know? And um, But she was she was she wanted to have me she wanted to have me and she asked me because in the beginning of the interview the job interview i was a bit defensive i would say because i knew that i had i started with some disadvantages with a handicap i would say um and she told me uh, and she asked me uh, what have you learned Armand, from this from this life you have lived from the criminal years you have lived what have you learned from those years and what have you learned from those years what the lessons you have learned how can that help us as an organization to solve our uh, society assignment in a way yeah and that 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 completely changed the dynamic in in uh, the job interview because instead of becoming defensive she was interested in me and make me the opportunity to uh, emphasize what I thought I was good at because I knew I was good at something. Sure. sure. Armand, tell us about 
using the truth about yourself, not hiding things. Tell the audience about that. Oh, yeah. It, and, you know, the first three, four years after getting back from, um, from the uh, criminal world, it, I, 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 I worked day and night to try to hide my reputation from before. Um, and, but it was, it, was, it was not successful because Google, if you took a good search for me, everything from these criminal cases were just exploding from Google. Um, so I was, I was uh, deciding myself that I wanted to take control over the story, over my story. Sure. Because if someone Googled me, it, it could be for anything, you know. If I want to hire an apartment, people Google you. If I want to meet a new girl, a girlfriend, they Google you. If you hire a job, they Google you. So in every case and scenarios, they Google you. So instead of being afraid of getting exposed or, um, um, or anything that could compromise me, I took, I, took um, um, I, I decided that I would take my story and tell it. Yeah. Uh, so no one could say, hey, why didn't you tell me? Right. Well, so you put it out there. You put it out I there. It, it out takes there. a lot of courage. A lot of courage yeah, I to did. do that. Yeah. I did. And, yeah, and that way it's out there. And hey, what can I tell you? Look it up. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, no one can arrest me. In, in yeah. That. So for people with a criminal past, there has to be a psychological shift to get back to normal life. How does one break that cycle of thinking the old way? Well, it's, it's easy now, or a, a bit easier now, afterwards, everything, uh, to say how I did it. Uh, at the time, is, I didn't have that. It was not that clear for me at the time when I was going through, through it. But I, I knew that I didn't, I didn't have the ability or skill sets to do it alone. So one of the most important parts for me in my rehabilitation was that I asked for help. I asked other people, hey, this is my life. I have been, I'm doing this and this and this. I'm good at that and that, but this one, I, I, I don't have the clue. And if I'm going to succeed in my rehabilitation, I need help with that. So that was the most important part. And my and my discovery was that most people wanted to help. Yeah, yeah. Most people want to help. And, um, but I met three important people in my life, and they had extraordinary skill sets in meeting people in crisis. And, I, and I, I used to say that they have the ability to create the right temperature in the room. Because if you are going to undress yourself... Yeah, because yeah. that's what it is when you ask for help. You are yeah. completely naked. Then it's good that you meet people that has the ability to create the right temperature in the room, and they did that in a way that I could open up. So later in the recovery and my rehabilitation, I used it um, with uh, like a strategic thing, I would say. Okay. Um, not strategic, but more with purpose or uh, uh, intended, I would say. Um, so that's the most important discovery I did, ask for help. Um, and you, and hear that, you hear that over and over again, you know, and no matter what in life, you can't do it alone. You have to have help. Yeah, and, and, and I, I get it. It's com I completely get it. It's very hard to ask for help because you're afraid of, not getting, they don't understand you. They are, you are afraid of um, uh, that this, you are not important enough and you're afraid of the shame of asking for help and you are raised to make it your own. Uh, and maybe the most fearful of everything is you, you're afraid of uh, they don't understand you, how it's like. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and um, so I understand, but people are, willing to help and i try and i i always try to say to people that 
and don't dare to ask for help. Don't think that you are a burden to anyone. Try to think that you are doing them a favor because everyone wants to help. So you are making them a favor and you are making them proud that they, particularly they, are the persons that get the chance to help you. And I think those three people in my story are really proud today that they, uh, their <clears throat> help was the, this important help that made me succeed in that, what I'm doing now. So, but it's easier and, and, and it's easier to accept help than ask for help. That was also a, a big change uh, or a big difference, I would say. So you leave working for the welfare system after 16 years and you start uh, your own company. Tell us about the work you do with your company and building bridges uh, from ex-convicts to the corporate world and the skill sets criminals naturally possess that make them good candidates to hire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and this is, uh, I don't know if you have that word in English, but I, I but it's, it's a really big mission for me. It's like a moon landing project for me um, because I, um, I do think that ex-criminals has extraordinary skill sets uh, unleashed potential that could be used in uh, in ordinary workforces. Um, so when I was quitting my job in the public government January last year, I yeah. and, and that was six weeks before the pandemic, so it was not the best timing, I would mm -hmm. say. But I uh, I've learned from that as well. But but um, the mission is so important that we can't. We can't wait for those bumps. Uh, you didn't, I didn't know, of course, the, this bump. Um, but my mission was that I wanted to create a bridge between ex-criminals and, and, and the normal work life. Um, and I think based on my experience, um, because I knew that for me to survive as a criminal, I did have a lot of skill sets that I had to use from from hour to hour i would say and those um skill sets and qualities i think if you just ab are able to put that into a positive everyday life as an employer as an employee um it, it, the potential is so it's enormous it's enormous armand you also train the employers how to interview the job applicants, uh, make changes to the job description and get the best out of that candidate? Yeah, I speak with uh, employers about that. But at the moment now, I'm in a mission where I do public talks about it. Um, so where I can have 200 leaders, 300 leaders, 400 leaders. And when the pandemic is completely off and gone, we can fill a, a room with a thousand leaders. And then my goal is to see, help them to see that they could be the person um, that could be create more persons like me, you know, yeah. because it's really possible. So when I, when I speak to leaders afterwards, working with HR and, and so on, and they said, well, Armon, today I have to, I have to thank you because I have now completely changed the way I see on how to hire people. That's and, great. That's great. Well, that's it's a fantastic testimonial, you know. And yeah. if I get uh, one out of ten leaders who think differently, that they instead of putting uh, the name of an ex-criminal behind in in the application, uh, yeah, the bottom of the pile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, they take it. Uh, up front uh, and, right. and instead of treating ex-criminals and possibly hiring him or her as a charity I want them to see that this could be the best um, hire ever or the best um, engagement not engagement but the best um, experience or well experience yes uh, yeah. that year because yeah, it's not yeah. a charity. It's not, a, it's not about no. you do it because you feel sorry for them or right. because you get money from the public government because you are so 
you're so good when you are giving someone a chance. You do it because it's the best employer, uh, employee. Right. Ever. It's the best thing for them. It's going yeah. to be the best thing for them. What, what has been the employer response to this? And what has been the, the response from the uh, ex-convicts uh, wanting to go through your program? How, how have they reacted so far? Uh, yeah. The, and of course, there is. you can't go directly from prison to into a job. You need to do something in between. It depends, of course the track record you have as a, as a criminal. But if you have been 10 years of prison and, and just go out in a normal job, it doesn't work like that. So we need to, we need to put together a program for them yeah. uh, so they can uh, get job and how, also how to keep it. Um, and, um, but the uh, employees, they, have, they are, at, at least in Norway, I don't know how it is international, but they are seeking for possibilities to um to hire people with um outside uh, outside um or people are disabled or anyway but they to to, to hire an ex-criminal that is even harder i would say because they see it as a risk yeah they you can just imagine if you see a person with a tattoo in the face sitting yeah. in uh, selling groceries or as a salesman or a real estate guy or anything it's very easy for us to stereotype okay what yeah he's, he's i didn't i didn't think about that that part of it yeah yeah the, out, so, the outside appearance yeah so it's um it's it's hard so we need to work uh, with them um, making the um employers more um, safe and secure uh, and train them in how to see people uh, in, in another way. And yeah. my talk is the first, um, I would first say, step. first step because yeah. they see that, well, Ademann doesn't look like an ex-criminal. Right. Yeah. And it could be good. Tell us uh, how you found running and about your project Tour de Wave, and what is the message you, you give out of that? Well, um, Tour de Wave is, is a, it's a run and smile event that I created um, during the pandemic. And it was because of, I was, as I told you earlier, I was um, uh, quitting my job in a, in a safe and secure job in the public government and started for myself as a public speaker. Uh, and everyone that has has a living out of gathering people has had bad times. So I went to unemployment, partly unemployment. So I had some good, I had some spare time. Yeah. And I love to run. Uh, running has been a huge important in my recovery. Um, and I, I, I run because meeting people from the running environment was very important for me because they didn't judge me as an ex-criminal and they didn't see me as a, a competitor as well because I wasn't doing very well in running. Uh, it was uh, yeah. it's not the fast pace. But anyways, those years when I was starting my recovery, the running environment was hugely important for me. And I saw that there were open open um, and friendly people. So, and it's so easy to be friendly to people when you're running. So I met those friendly people all, all the way. So when I was partly unemployed um, last year, I was deciding that I wanted to, A, I wanted to do something for myself, run, and I want to run long. And while I was running a long distance, why couldn't I be nice to people I met at the same time because I'm still out there. So why cannot be nice? Sure. Um, so I decided to run from my home city uh, to another village uh, north in the mid parts of Norway. And uh, it was uh, 200 and 210 kilometers. And um, 
I was smiling and uh, running and smiling and waving to everyone I met. That's why it's called Tour de Wave, because we needed to wave, because that time there was masks on people's face, so we didn't see their smile, so we needed oh, yeah. to wave. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we needed... So um, I, I, yeah, so I scale it up a bit and I run with, um, I run with mayors at the uh, different cities I was running through and I was um, uh, trying to run with kindergartens, schools, uh, patient groups and everyone that was vulnerable in the pandemic period and uh, give them a day that they did remember. That sounds great, Armand. That's that's very noble of you. For those people who are struggling with their own challenges and adversities, what advice can you give them uh, to overcome? Oh, yeah, that is. I don't think it's one general advice um, that could be one size fits all, but um I would start with saying that if I could change my life, um, I know that everyone can. So that's that's the foundation, I would say. Um, right. Okay. In it, yeah. So it's hope for everyone, but of course, everyone needs to do do the job. And for me, it was when I noticed and discovered. Um, that I could ask for help and I received help in return. That was the most important discovery for me. So find someone that you trust and uh, try to be open. Um, and as I told you before, it's almost like giving people, uh, um, doing them a favor. And the next thing I did, I don't know if that's suitable for everyone, but because I've done so many choices wrong um, for many years uh, with economy, with uh, doing crime and everything. So I was, my body was uh, completely um, into that. I was doing all the wrong things all the time. So I yeah. needed to change that. So in order to change my self experience of myself, I needed to do the right things. So I was exaggerating. And you know, when you pass the streets and it's a red man, people can walk um, from time to time if there are no cars coming. But I didn't. I didn't do anything illegal and anything against the rules at all. So I was completely bored, my friends told me. You don't do anything irregular anymore. So I had to treat myself in any sense like a person that did everything at the book, if that makes sense. What excites you the most going forward with your life and your work? Well, it's, um, it's two things. <laughs> and that is my, um, that's my uh, engagement for these um, former criminals. I want to make a difference um, in this area. Uh, I, I want to make... Um, a huge difference. And the other thing is to help my kids not to be like me and teach them the skill sets that I wish that I had when I was growing up because yeah. I didn't have that. So, yeah. so that is really, really important for me. And that was also one of the things that I didn't want. I didn't want to be a daddy again because uh, I was afraid that that would be just like me, you know? Yeah. And who wants the kids to be like the person I have been? So I didn't dare, but now I dare. Now I had two kids. They are four and six years. So the most important things I teach them, dare to ask for help, dare to be a friend to anyone you meet uh, and create relation skills, skill set in relationships. And it's more, far more important than, math or uh, language yeah. or anything they teach in school. Well, I'm sure they're going to grow up to be great people. How can people contact you? Uh, do you have a website or anything or if they want yeah. to converse? With yeah, you? I do. I do. And uh, the website is um, Um 
All right. And I'm, and I'm also in Instagram. Uh, and in Instagram, it's uh, it's just my name, Arman Vesta, without D in Arman, but with a D in Vestad. Okay, so Instagram is Arman V E S T A. And D in the end. And D. Okay, I'm going to list that information in the podcast notes. Uh, I want to thank you, Armin, for being so open and sharing the details of your life. Uh, your story is remarkable and inspiring to anybody out there. Uh, your work helping people to change their lives for the better uh, is a blessing, and I wish you all the best going forward. Comments and suggestions are appreciated to make the podcast better. All is welcome. You can email us at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. We have a website, it's a wrap with rap.com. And you can go on uh, the, to get on the uh, emailing list on off the website. We have a Facebook page, and now we have a Facebook group. And that's called It's a Rap with Rap. We're on Instagram, It's a Rap with Rap podcast. And if you want to catch all the episodes on YouTube, uh, It's a Rap with Rap, the podcast uncut. I want to thank everyone for listening. Everyone, please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.